Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for July 25th, 2017. This is Peter Serretta. On today's show, we will be doing a lot of news because Comic-Con happened this past week, and there's a lot of leftovers, and there's just a lot of news happening, so we have no time for a water cooler, mailbag, or feature today. Uh, In the news, we'll be talking about Avengers, we'll be talking about Thor, we'll be talking about uh, Captain Marvel. Justice League reshoots, James Bond, and Stranger Things 2. So there's there's a, just so much to talk about. And we're going to have both Ben Pearson and Huai Chan Bui on. Right now I have Ben. How's it going, Ben? Hey, what's up? First, I want to thank you for keeping the ship afloat as we were all in San Diego, you know, not sleeping, <laughs> waiting in lines, <laughs> and trying to cover... A ton of stuff that uh, just got put online after we saw it. So yeah, absolutely. You guys, there. you guys killed it. You did a great job. So, and uh, I want to apologize to the audience in advance for the 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 barrage of superhero news that we are about to dump on you. I know that every not everybody loves the superhero beat, but that just happens to be you know everybody was at Comic Con and everybody was doing interviews. So we we just have a lot of it. But yeah. before we get into superheroes, let's get into James Bond because this story just broke that a new James Bond movie was announced. You wrote the article for Slash on the Com. What, what do we know? So we know very little, actually. Uh, the James Bond official Twitter account just tweeted, James Bond will return to U.S. cinemas on November 8th, 2019 with a traditional earlier release in the U.K. and the rest of the world. That's it. That's all we know. So James <laughs> Bond is coming back on November 8th, 2019. That's really all. Uh, we're not do, sure if do Daniel we even Craig... Know if, do we even know if Sony is distributing this film? No, we don't, actually, because um, Sony's uh, distribution deal with MGM and Eon Productions lapsed after Spectre, which was the last Bond movie that came out in 2015. So there has been, uh, as recently as this past April, a five-studio Uh, battle for the rights to distribute the next Bond movie. And we're not sure who has emerged victorious from that yet, uh, if anyone. Uh, I think um, Hollywood Reporter said that um, 
I believe Sony and Warner Brothers are the two uh, candidates who are still sort of in the fight. So um, I don't know if uh, if we don't, you know, if, if the winner hasn't been announced yeah. yet or if the winner hasn't been determined yet. Well, you um, know, you know, if Warner Brothers gets this deal, you know, there's a certain director that has a deal at Warner Brothers. Yeah, that so that would be Christopher Nolan. Yes. So what's the chances of Christopher Nolan directing this James so, Bond movie? It's it's so unclear based on just a release date that we have, but <laughs> Nolan uh, relatively recently said he you know he's been talking about making a Bond movie or wanting to make a Bond movie for I think at least seven years, maybe longer than that. Um, so he's had actual conversations with uh, Michael G. Wilson and Barbara. Uh, Broccoli, who are the producers of the Bond franchise, he's met with them multiple times over the years and talked about um, the potential of directing a Bond movie. I think his most recent comments during the Dunkirk press tour, he was saying that he would love to make a Bond movie, but he uh, would only come on board if the franchise, quote, needs reinvention. So to me, that means he would not come back or he would not direct uh, a new Bond movie if Daniel Craig were to come back to reprise that role because that seems like whatever Bond 25 is going to be if Craig is involved it's going to be sort of his send-off and that doesn't exactly sound like a reinvention um, if he doesn't come back I feel like the odds are much higher that Nolan might be brought on especially since he doesn't have an officially announced follow-up movie to Dunkirk yet um, so it would be uh, interesting to see if that happens. I think a more likely choice is probably Patrick uh, McGuigan, uh, or I'm sorry, McGuigan. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that. It's it's Scottish last name, so I know the pronunciations get a little strange there. But he directed Lucky Number Eleven. He's directed a bunch of episodes of Sherlock, um, and he actually was rumored to be uh, the the director of this new Bond movie, Bond Twenty Five, uh, back in May. So. You know that hasn't been officially confirmed yet, but that's those are the possibilities that are sort of floating out there right now. Yeah, uh, I, I like Patrick's style. I would love to see a Christopher Nolan Bond movie. He's already been borrowing a lot from Bond in all of his movies. If you look at Dark Knight Rises, that opening plane sequence was definitely mm-hmm. inspired by a James Bond movie. Uh, and um, and I, I've already theorized on this podcast. I'd like to see Christopher Nolan direct a James Bond that takes place, you know, a period setting of the 1960s. Yeah, man. That would be so awesome. Yeah. Um, so we really don't know anything. We know a release date. And yep. even then, we don't even know the UK release date. That's true. <laughs> uh, so let's move on to uh, some stuff we do know about. And that includes Justice League. Um, we've heard that Josh Whedon obviously is taking over this film from Zack Snyder, who had some tragedy in his life and had to step down. Um, we assume that there was going to be some extensive reshoots and now that has been confirmed. What do we know? Yeah. So at Comic-Con, uh, Ray Fisher, who plays Cyborg in Justice League, basically said that the movie's reshoots were, quote, brief, if anything. But now a new report from Variety says that uh, it sort of confirms what you'd been hearing and what some of us had been hearing, that these reshoots are a pretty big deal. The studio is spending $25 million on them, uh, and the reshoots themselves have have lasted roughly two months at this point, um, which has proven to be problematic for a lot of the in-demand actors that this movie has. 
uh, hilariously, my favorite part of this entire story is that Henry Cavill, who obviously plays Superman, uh, is also starring in Mission Impossible 6 over at Paramount, and he grew a mustache to play that character, and Paramount refuses to allow him to shave that off because he has to go back and forth between movies, so he's going, you know, he's filming Mission Impossible, he's jumping back over to Warner Brothers to do some Superman stuff, uh, Paramount's like, hell no, you can't shave that mustache, so now they're gonna have to digitally remove Henry Cavill's mustache from from the Justice League uh, pickups. So that is the idea that somebody's just going to have to sit in front of a computer and like <laughs> scrape off Henry Cavill's upper lip is uh, is uh, just amusing to yeah. no end. That, that, that is hilarious. That's not the first time a superhero has grown facial uh, hair in, in reshoots, you know, that caused problems. And I'm speaking of, I mean, this is a much smaller scale, but Josh Whedon, again, had an idea of an end credit scene for Avengers and filmed it after the junket, the day after the junket of them in the swarmer scene. And Chris Evans, or yeah, Chris Evans had um, a, a beard, I believe. So when you see him sitting there at the, at the table, he has his like hand over his face and it, it's basically because he's hiding <laughs> the facial hair. Wow. Uh, but, but th- that way you could hide it that way in, in this film they're doing two months of reshoots i'm not sure how much superman yeah. is in that movie but you can't hide that with a hand you, yeah. you have to uh it, it, yeah that's funny but it's also funny you know ray fisher saying that the reshoots were brief if anything uh right next to ben affleck saying that you know he's gonna be in the batman which i still don't believe yeah we'll uh, see about that yeah, i think we'll the only see. other big piece um that that's worth talking about and with the justice league thing is that uh there's been some discussion about whether or not joss whedon is going to receive directing credit for the movie because he came on and by the time the movie is released he will have been working on justice league for the past six months yeah. um and yeah, there, are, there lot... aren't a lot of examples of this happening in uh, previously yeah. really yeah, so it's tough. I was I was sort of um, you can read it on slashfilm.com. I wrote up uh, a article that sort of runs through the Directors Guild of America and the way that they um, determine credit and uh, how that you know historically they've they've sort of um, allowed people to share directing credit if there's quote a bona fide team involved. I'm not sure if they are going to. I mean, I, they they aren't going to look at Snyder and Whedon as a team, but yeah. because they didn't make the movie together. But I wonder how much this decision is going to um, be, you know, set a precedent for what's going on with Ron Howard and the Lord Miller situation over at Lucasfilm. So, um, you know, there's it, it, a lot it, of uh, yeah. Go I was going to say, even in cases where there were a bona fide team, like with John Wick, um, you know, the DGA has prevented them from sharing credit like you know rodriguez and frank marshall or i mean frank uh, miller mm-hmm. with yep. sin city um usually you have to be related you have to be brothers or sisters uh unless you know you were working together before you entered right. the dj um i mean you have it all in your article here but um i would think that they're gonna have to Someone's going to have to get a co-director credit, and someone's going to have to get the director credit. Yeah, it's interesting. It's and Variety's Variety's report says that they have a source that says that Whedon will not be receiving a directing credit, but I think it's sort of too early to determine that. I'm not sure who their source is, where that's coming from, unless that source is from the DGA. I, I don't really know if we can. 
I don't know. I mean, I, I yeah. take that. I'm sure they I'm sure they believe it and they'll stand by that. But I'm just uh, I don't know. It remains to be seen. And, and the other interesting thing about this is even if all parties agree upon something, it's still DGA that decides this. Right. Uh, yes. To protect. I mean, it, it's to protect the directors because obviously, you know, a director could be forced to sign on to a movie, you know, in, in circumstances that are not good. Right. Uh, so this is all to protect the the director so we might not know what the credits are until you know the junket <laughs> before the movie's released yep um also in the news uh taika watiki was at comic-con and he did some press he talked to mtv news and he was talking about the comedy in thor ragnarok and he let it slip that probably 80 percent of the film hit was improvised what does that mean? Because I don't think they're making up big action sequences. On right. Set. Right. Yeah. So his quote is, I would say we improvise probably 80% of the film or ad libbed and threw in stuff. My style of working is I'll often be behind the camera or right next to the camera yelling words at people like, say this, say this, say it this way. I'll straight up give Anthony Hopkins a line reading. I don't care, which I, I love that last part. The idea <laughs> of, uh, you know, he just doesn't give a crap at all. And we'll just, he, you know, he knows what he wants and he'll yeah. make sure he gets it. Um, so what I think this really means is uh you know the concept of alts right you've heard this probably in in uh, reference to judd apatow movies hollywood comedies they'll shoot um a sequence uh or a scene uh as it is on the page and then if they have extra time built in if they have good producers who have sort of understand the way that the the directors work uh there will be some extra time for them to sort of play around with it and maybe ad lib and sort of um you know put tweak what's on the page in order to find something that maybe is a little bit more natural maybe fits better with the characters whatever um i think that's probably what's going on here i think what ytt is actually saying is uh, you know, we had a structure of this movie. We had all of the <laughs> the main plot beats uh, laid out, and then what has ended up in the cut that he has right now, which we still don't know if that's the final cut or not. The movie doesn't come out until November, so I'm sure he's still going to be working on it for a little bit. Um, but what is in that cut right now is that 80% of the dialogue is uh, is not the first take. You know, it's it's one of the things that they did to sort of tweak it and improve it there on the day. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think anybody should freak out like, wow, this is insane. They're, you know, improvising 80% of a massive, you know, multi-hundred million dollar <laughs> blockbuster movie. I think it's more um, representative of the way that uh, YTT has, you know, he comes from, a comedic background of small, oh, uh, sure. you know, uh, really funny movies. And I think he's just, um, it's a good representation of him translating that style to uh, a huge production, like a Marvel movie. Um, although, although saying that having seen some footage at Comic-Con this past weekend, they showed this scene between Thor and Jeff Goldblum's character. And it was unlike anything I've seen in any Marvel movie. Not that it looked different than any marvel movie i mean Mm -hmm. it did look crazy but uh the interactions and the comic timing and i mean it might be that it was just goldblum being goldblum yeah uh but the con it felt like you could feel some energy that wasn't you know that it wasn't part of a script and i think that's probably why mtv asked about this yeah uh obviously there was like stuff in the news recently with phil lord and chris miller uh, you know, <laughs> leaving Han Solo or being fired from Han Solo because of uh, maybe clashes in style. Maybe they didn't know how to make a blockbuster. 
who knows? Uh, it's interesting that, um, you know, one side of the Disney kingdom. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, within the same uh, the same umbrella. Yeah, that is uh, that's something that I found fascinating too. It's like Kathleen Kennedy and the Star Wars people are uh, seem seemingly a little bit more rigid about um, how they run their uh, their side of the ship over there. But um, well, it's also a difference of like you know this is under Disney the you know third or fourth Star Wars movie coming out and you know that has a distinctive tone and whatever. At, at this point, Marvel's you know what twenty films in. Right. So yeah. uh, they're trying interesting things. If this was Thor, if this was the first Thor movie, it would have yeah, been insane. Yeah. Like this. Yeah, is, it's a little know. bit apples and oranges with the comparison, but uh, but you know, worth bringing up because of the way that um, that was such a centerpiece in all the stories coming out around the way that Lord and Miller were handling their set. So um, and, yeah, and we also learned someone's joining the cast. Yes, that would be uh, character actor Clancy Brown, who many people will probably recognize as, um, I think he plays Captain Hadley in uh, The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, He has done a ton of voiceover work. He is actually providing the voice for a character called Surtur, which is a fiery demon that appears at the very end of the Thor Ragnarok trailer that came online uh, this past weekend. Looks sort of like the Balrog from Lord of the Rings. It's this huge creature that's apparently like a thousand feet tall and hulk in the in the final shot of the trailer sort of jumps and you know looks like he's about to punch this demon creature in the face um so clancy brown who has this really great deep baritone voice uh is apparently coming on and doing the voice of surter and uh uh, Taika Waititi is doing the motion capture work for that character's body. And we know that he's already doing motion capture work for the character of Korg, but uh, it looks like he's kept himself busy behind the camera as well as in front of it for this film. It, it's amazing how much of Waititi's style and humor is coming through in this movie. I, you know, you, you, you see other directors come on board Marvel movies, and I'm not saying, you know, Russo Brothers are Whedon, you know, but others, and it seems like they're doing Marvel style, and, and this <laughs> it, this definitely seems seems like it's a Taika Waititi movie. Yeah, but for sure. Moving on, uh, on slashfilm.com, I did a trailer breakdown for that new Stranger Things two trailer, which is by the way, it's interesting that they're calling it Stranger Things two, not Stranger Things season two, but it's like a sequel to a movie. Yeah, and I think that's sort of in line with what the Duffer brothers have said that they, you know, that's the way that they approached this story is like, you know, it's been, it's become a cliche really of like, oh, it's one long movie. But I think they considered the first season of Stranger Things to be a movie. And then season two is another movie that has like a whole different set of influences and references and stuff like that. So it sort of makes sense, even though it is a little strange for a TV yeah. show to be referring to itself as a sequel. But I, I like it. Um, it's just a... It's just confusing on how to how do we frame it on the site. Yeah, how do we talk our, about it? Because are people going to search for Stranger Things <laughs> season two, or again, are right. they going to search for Stranger Things two? Um, but anyways, uh, this trailer is amazing. I'm, I'm sure you saw it. What did you think of the trailer? Yeah, I loved it. I think it's my favorite thing that I've seen uh, out of Comic Con uh, in general. I love the first season of Stranger Things. So the idea of these kids. Um, you know, suiting up as the Ghostbusters and, uh, <laughs> and getting back into some upside down action is uh, was really great to me. And your breakdown like really covers, I think, everything that you could possibly need to know about <laughs> about what this trailer, uh, you know, has to offer. 
Well, that's the great thing I love about us doing trailer breakdowns is we it, it's us investigating, like you know, and speculating upon stuff that we possibly don't know. Some things we do know. Yeah, um, it, it's like searching the frame and seeing, oh, what's that in the corner? What could that mean? Yeah, um, and you can read the whole thing on slashfilm.com, and there's a lot of good info there that maybe even after you've seen the show, you probably wouldn't recognize. Um, <laughs> But uh, one thing I wanted to bring up on here is the video game that they're playing at the arcade, called, uh, which is called Dragon's Lair. It's a 1983 uh, Starcom video game. I've never played it, although I've seen it. Uh, I don't know where I've seen it, but it's definitely something I've seen. The style's definitely recognizable because it's from ex-Disney uh, animator Don Blue's studio. And... Um, and it was uh, one of the first video games that was on Laserdisc, and they were using Laserdisc storage to overcome limitations of traditional video games of that era. I've never played it, but I've heard that like basically it's like animated, and you have to. It's all about timing, like hitting mm-hmm. things at certain times. Um, and the, the reason why I wanted to bring up this video game is uh, in the first season of Stranger Things, they had a Dungeons and Dragons game that was hugely influential in that season it was you know it was a metaphor for a lot of things it introduced the idea of the demigorgon demi how do you even pronounce that demigod uh, demo demogorgon demogorgon yeah, yeah I, I always mess it up um um <laughs> and also you know some people not, might not notice this but it foreshadows uh some stuff uh, will uses a fireball against the demigorgon which foreshadows nancy jonathan and steve uh setting the monster on fire in chapter chapter eight. So, you know, is Dragon's Lair, could Dragon's Lair potentially provide clues to this up, upcoming season? And um, the story of the game, Dragon's Lair, is it's about a knight named Dirk the Daring who is attempting to rescue a princess Daphne uh, from the evil dragon Singe who has locked the princess in the foul wizard Mordak's castle. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm not sure if what we're seeing on screen has anything to do with anything, but just the plot of the game seems very likely that has something to do with the show because, you know, could Princess Daphne be 11 trapped in the upside down? Who is, if so, who's the dragon? Is it this, like, new, huge, like, Lovecraftian monster? Mm-hmm. Um what do you think we could read from this? Yeah, I think that's a perfect reading. I think, uh, like you said, I mean, there's so much in the Dungeons and Dragons game. There's so many parallels there between what happens in that first uh, episode and then what happens later in that season that I think it would be a mistake to overlook um, uh, Dragon's Lair as just, uh, you know, a kitschy sort of 80s throwback. I think they really probably chose that game on purpose and and you know incorporated it thematically with what they're trying to do in stranger things too so i think uh the idea of of 11 being the princess is really great i am also hoping that she sort of subverts the traditional princess trope and it looks like she is not you know from what we see in the trailer she sort of finds her own way out of the upside down instead of being rescued so um, you know, that's always yeah. a good thing. I, I'm not sure, uh, what other parallels we can draw from it. Maybe if this is something that shows up in the first episode and we actually see more of the gameplay and are able to, you know, sort of, um, track what those characters do, then maybe we can well, keep that well, stuff in, the in gameplay, mind. Though, 
in the gameplay that we see in the trailer, the knight tries to, I think, get a sword, and it's basically uh, the dragon shows up and fi- breathes fire on him and basically kills him. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. he is incinerated. Uh, I'm not sure so, if that has anything to do with yeah, anything. Yeah, will one of the main characters die this season? I don't know. That could be interesting. That could be a, a way, you know, maybe like Mike or one of the, the main characters um, just and gets maybe, consumed maybe, by one of the, uh, that Lovecraftian monster. Or Yeah, and, and maybe potentially they were going after something that's, you know, more for, you know, something like a treasure of some kind. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure if that, uh, but you can read the whole uh, trailer breakdown on the site. But one other thing I wanted to mention, like th- there's stuff in this trailer breakdown that you will not notice. Like in the scene where they're playing the game, uh, Dustin is wearing this t-shirt with the periodic table of contents. And this is a clever uh referenced by the Duffer Brothers because they were kind of chastised online on Reddit and stuff for including a periodic table or, or, or the the periodic table in the school in, in season one and there were elements on there that weren't introduced or discovered for the next decade. So <laughs> now they have the, the correct table uh, uh, periodic table on his shirt. And I, I don't think that's a coincidence. But Yeah, um, it's like uh, James Cameron fixing the skyline, like the starscape in Titanic after Neil deGrasse Tyson called him out and said it was inaccurate. <laughs> it's just fun. Yeah. Um, hold on one second. And coming off of Comic-Con, there is a lot of loose ends and a lot of information that came out over the weekend that got missed especially around Marvel. To talk about that, I have HT from the site. Uh, HT, how's it going? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing fine. Uh, you wrote a couple, a few articles on the site today uh, about the, the basically the leftovers from the Marvel uh, interviews that happened at Comic-Con. The first stuff I wanted to talk about is the uh, one of the directors of Infinity War, Joe Russo, mm-hmm basically shed some light on what is going on because at D23 they unveiled that Thanos is going to have a group of minions that will mm-hmm. help him hopefully achieve domination and get you know get all the infinity stones um Joe Russo kind of explained what their role in this film is uh what do we know So Thanos will be accompanied by his minions called the Black Order. They are from the comics, but they've been introduced more recently, um, as recently as 2013, uh, in a run by Jonathan Hickman, Jerome Opina, and Jim Chung in uh, New Avengers Volume 3. And um, they're they're kind of a new sort of goon for him. He's always been kind of a loner before um, and like single-minded in his mission against uh, to find the Infinity Gauntlet. But here, uh, Joe Russo said they're meant to um, increase Thanos's menace and kind of help battle the sprawling amount of superheroes that exist in the MCU. Um, and I guess they have different powers as well. So there is a right-hand man, Corvus Glaive, who tends to act as Thanos' messenger. There is uh, Corvus's wife, Proxima Midnight, who uh, acts as enforcer. Um, a bl- the Black Dwarf, who is kind of the a monster who is about the size of the Hulk. And Ebony Ma, who is a sorcerer who has battled Doctor Strange um, in the comics. And um, so they're 
yeah, they're there to definitely increase uh, Thanos's uh, intimid- intimidation. Yeah, not not only that. Um, in the comics, they're not related to Thanos, but mm. now they're going to be his, I, I believe, adopted children. Uh, which makes this a bit more personal. Adopted children, just like Gamora and um, oh my god, what's her name? It, Nebula. It's, Nebula. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, they're making it more personal, and I, I think Joe said something about that too. That this is going to be a whole new Thanos. What, what did he say about that? Um, so this Thanos is uh, adopting a more casual approach, is what Joe said, uh, because we don't see him in his armor anymore that we first saw him in, in the um, after credit scenes of Avengers and even in Guardians of the Galaxy. Here, he doesn't have his armor. He doesn't have his helmet, which is why he kind of looks a little bald. You're like, oh, well, I guess he didn't have hair in the end. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's apparently a very philosophical, spiritual part of his journey um as he's collecting the infinity stones uh he doesn't require the armor as much um when he as when he was a warlord um Jerusa said so to yeah. quote i paraphrased it well that makes sense and it probably will make for a you, you know a more uh you could see the character come out more when he's not <laughs> under all this armor uh also the the, the, the black order I, I guess is probably like any you know, anybody that's watched a series of television like Buffy or, you know, whatnot knows that, like, you know, these minions are added so that the the heroes can take down some people throughout the, the story. Yeah. Uh, with, and also, without, like, yeah. Yeah. And also the, the big bad needs someone to bounce off of. You can't just be there monologuing the entire time, too. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, also at Comic-Con, Kevin Feige was doing interviews. He didn't do an interview with us, but he did an interview with, um, I believe, I, IGN. Uh, in MTV, he uh, explained, well, Captain Marvel is going to be one of those movies that is after Infinity War, and we learned at Comic-Con that Captain Marvel is going to be a movie that takes place in the 1990s and co-starring Samuel Jackson as Nick Fury, a two-eyed Nick Fury. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other big reveal at Comic-Con was that the Skrulls are going to be in it. So wh- what does that mean for the Marvel Cinematic Universe? So the Skrulls we first got a glimpse of, or got a hint of, rather, in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. It was actually the Kree who we saw more of in Guardians. But one of the yeah, big they're, parts... They're, they're kind of they're like the, the enemies of the Skrulls, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. One of the big parts of the Marvel Comics mythology is the Kree-Skrull War, which has been waged over decades, I think, of just like comics issues. And... Um, I don't actually know much about the Skrulls. I think they are shapeshifters. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. And there's this whole huge, I think, event series, I think it was Secret Invasion, where they actually come in and like take, you know, shapeshift into some of the the yeah. uh, superheroes we know, and it becomes very confusing. And I'm sure now that we've done Civil War and we're doing Infinity War, Secret Invasion is probably coming down the line, especially since they're setting up the, the Skrulls. Yeah, and now that we've established our characters, it'll be easier to do all the doppelgangers and uh, uh, backstabbing that will, that the scrolls will entail. So yeah, apparently the Kree Scroll War, um, that mythology will factor into Captain Marvel, which will be interesting because it's set in the '90s, 20 years before Iron Man. And Feige was also asked about um, the, the future of superhero movies. Yeah, he, he said something to Reddy. What did he say? 
Okay. Uh, so to quote, he said, um, and nobody would get fatigued more than all of us at Marvel Studios. We live this, we breathe this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So almost every film we make and every decision we make is to keep ourselves interested and to keep things fresh and to keep things unexpected. And so far, as you say, 19 films in, the audience seems to be responding to that. So he's saying that uh, he does worry about superhero fatigue and even he is feeling it himself, but he's trying to keep the genres and the movies as interesting and different as he can in Marvel Studios, at least. Um, and I think they've been doing that. Like, they've been playing with genre with each film. Um, we saw it with Spider-Man, with the John Hughes teen movie, uh, with the heist film in Ant-Man. Um, yeah, you, even Thor Ragnarok looks completely yeah. different from the other two Thor movies. Yeah, it's really exciting. So, um, um, yeah, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, the... If you thought the Avengers, you know, couldn't get together as a team previously, imagine the Skrulls, you know, infiltrating them, you know, yeah. and pretending, you know, in breaking that group up even further. I, I can imagine that might be the end of this upcoming phase after Infinity War. Or, yeah. or, maybe, the, or maybe this could even be Avengers 4. We don't know what Avengers 4 is. but Right. We thought yeah. it would be Infinity War Part 2, but it could be a completely different story. For sure. Um, another story you wrote up on the site today is the uh, the con uh, the Spider-Man Homecoming art of book came out and mm -hmm. it, it has some revelations. And one of the revelations is that some other Avengers were originally going to be part of Spider-Man Homecoming alongside Iron Man. So what, mm -hmm. what did we learn? So there is a photo uh, in the art book. Uh, of concept art of the original script. Uh, and it included Vision and War Machine uh, taking role in the fairy scene in Spider-Man Homecoming. So in this scene, you see Vision lifting a car up from the water and uh, War Machine is helping Iron Man to repair the ship in its holes. Um, and in the film, we see this is one of Spider-Man's big kind of failures. He ends up saving the ship but ripping, ripping it in half and it ends up being Iron Man who has to repair it and like fix Peter's mess essentially. Um, so it does play a pivotal part in Peter's kind of reckoning but I think it might have been too crowded if we had more than just Iron Man in there. I think it was already kind of cutting it a little close with having Iron Man play such a pivotal role in Spider-Man Homecoming. Oh for sure and we, we don't know why those characters were removed but I'm assuming it you know, the, there was such a more personal connection between Tony Stark and Peter Parker and that mentor-mentee relationship and mm -hmm. how he, uh, how Peter Parker kind of fails Tony Stark in this moment. I feel like it's more personal when it's just mm -hmm. one, you know, it's just him. It's not, you know, the Avengers coming in to save the day. Yeah. Um, so I think, I, I think we both, what was that? Oh, I was going to say, it would have been like another Avengers 3.5, like Civil War was. So just all the Avengers coming in, being disappointed for one scene and then leaving. For sure. And mm -hmm. that does it for today's edition of Slash Film Daily. I want to thank bo both Huaytran Bowie and Ben Pearson for joining me. You can find both of their work on SlashFilm.com. Uh, 
HT runs a podcast called the Millennium Millennial Falcon, which you can find on iTunes. Uh, if you like this show, please go to iTunes. Please give us a review, rate it, tell your friends. Uh, we're still going to be doing mailbag segments, so if you have a question, please send it to us at peter at slashfilm.com, and hopefully we'll get to it. Um, there's just been so much news lately that we haven't had time, um, but we will be trying to do more of that, and we'll probably be trying to do some more feature segments in the future. Thanks for listening. <laughs>